Welcome to the Living Parables podcast, where we uncover spiritual truth and lessons God has given us through his word and our own life stories. I am Nate, your host. To all the listeners tuning into the show today, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I appreciate every single one of you. And now let us begin. Well, I'd like to welcome you back to a brand new week, brand new episode. I'd like to take this time to say what a privilege and honor it was to go through the book study of Colossians. And I pray that that study itself blessed you and edified your soul. And I'll tell you, all glory goes to God. All glory goes to Christ. And with that book study, what it just did for me spiritually just makes me that much more motivated to do those things continually. And I hope and pray that that truly does bless you. So with that being said, we have a special episode today. And as you probably have already looked at the title, you probably figured out what it is already. But we are doing a special one episode series on a book study of the book of Jude. And I know what you're thinking. Well, Nate, Jude only has one chapter and you'd be absolutely correct. This book is a powerful book. It's a, such a very powerful book. And I cannot wait to get started with this one. And so I will just give you a little sneak peek of next week, though. God willing, next week, we are going to start a new book series on the book of Ephesians. And I'm super excited for that. I, I really am. Not that one book is more special than the other, but it's been it's been a little bit since I've read Ephesians all the way through and studied it out. And I'll just tell you, I go to Ephesians quite a bit, especially on this show. And now that I'm able to walk through it, break it down, uh, what a wonderful privilege that is going to be. So just kind of gear up for that. But we're going to go ahead and start with the introductions of the book of Jude. So Jude, which is rendered Judah in Hebrew and Judas in Greek, was named after its author, one of the four half-brothers of Christ. And you can find those scriptures in Matthew 13.55 and Mark 6.3. As the fourth shortest New Testament book, which there are three shorter, which is the book of Philemon, 2 John, and 3 John. Jude is the last of eight general epistles. And it's really interesting. Jude does not quote the Old Testament directly, but there are nine allusions, A there, not illusions, allusions, to it. So let's talk about Jude for a second. This was a common name in Palestine. At least eight were named in the New Testament. The author Jude generally has been accepted as Jude, Christ's half-brother. He is to be differentiated from the apostle Judas, the son of James. Several lines of thought lead to this conclusion. So first, Jude's appeal to being the brother of James and the leader of the Jerusalem Council, and another half-brother of Jesus. Number two, 
Jude's salutation being similar to James. And number three, Jude's not identifying himself as an apostle, but rather distinguishing between himself and the apostles. You can find that in verse 17, and we'll get there shortly. So a couple things I want us to really pinpoint for the actual background of this. So let's take a look at a little bit of the background here. Jude lived at a time when Christianity was under severe political attack from Rome and aggressive spiritual infiltration from Gnostic-like apostates and libertines who sowed abundant seed for a gigantic harvest of doctrinal error. I know that was a mouthful there. It could be that this was the forerunner to full-blown Gnosticism, which the Apostle John would confront over 25 years later in his epistles. Except for John, who lived at the close of the century, all of the other apostles had been martyred, and Christianity was thought to have been extremely vulnerable. Thus, Jude called the church to fight in the midst of intense spiritual warfare for the truth. And I'm going to pause right there for the introductions. This is the reason why I'm doing this study right now, because the church is under attack and has been under attack for a long time. Sin has been closeted. It's been concealed. It's been veiled. And now it is burst forth from that closet. It is ripped open the veil. And now it's gnashing its teeth at the truth. And you're seeing that in all different forms. You're even seeing that in the church itself. It has infiltrated the innermost parts of the church. And that's why we have divisions. That's why we have doctrinal error. And that's why we have apostates. And the reality of that is, is very damaging to people because I want you to think of this for a minute. If you've been in church for any length of time, you have probably experienced a split, a division, or a mass exodus of false converts. Why I say that is because I've been a part of those three times. And I'll tell you, it is really damaging for those who are new to the faith, who are maybe on the outside and that seed is being planted. And then the next thing you know, apostasy happens. And it's such a terrible thing. Apostasy is such a terrible, terrible thing. So let's go ahead and talk for just a minute about what an apostate is or what is apostasy. Apostasy from the Greek word apostasia means a defiance of an established system or authority, a rebellion or an abandonment, which is like a breach of faith. In the first century world, apostasy was a technical term for political revolt or defection. Just like in the first century, spiritual apostasy threatens the body of Christ today. To fully identify and combat apostasy, Christians should understand its various forms and the traits that characterize its doctrines and teachers. As to the forms of apostasy, there are two main types. Number one, a falling away from key and true doctrines of the Bible into heretical teachings that claim to be the, quote-unquote, the real Christian doctrine. And number two, a complete 
renunciation of the Christian faith, which results in the full abandonment of Christ. So there you have it. That's what it means to be an apostate. And I will just tell you, I've experienced this several times. And people look the part. They throw their hands up when they're singing songs. They're involved in Bible studies. And the next thing you know, they're stirring up dissension. They're introducing destructive heresies. That seems subtle. That seems small. But... That's how forest fires start, by a small little spark. The next thing you know, it's a raging wildfire that you cannot contain. This is why we must combat those types of apostasies. We have to be careful who we allow in the church. I know what you're thinking right now. Well, wait a minute. Isn't the church for everybody? Yes, it most certainly is. And you're absolutely correct. What I'm talking about is more or less in leadership. You cannot let anybody that has a desire to be in leadership. You can't. Because in the book of Timothy and Titus, we see the qualifications of elders and deacons. You cannot go outside of those qualifications. And sometimes, it takes a long time to determine if someone is able to have those qualifications to be in those positions of leadership. I've been saying this lately to people, and I fully mean this, and this is for people in the church and people outside the church, specifically like the workplace. I've been saying this, and here's what I've been saying. You can't tell if a tree bears bad or good fruit right away. It takes time. If you've ever planted a fruit tree, it takes time. So you have to look at their life. You have to look at how they respond to different situations. How do they handle stressful situations? How do they handle adversity? How do they handle people not agreeing with them? Are they, are they demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit? Are they acting like Christ? Are they responding to people in love and grace? Or are they holding secret meetings, forming factions, trying to overthrow leadership, trying to tell others and recruit them to remove people of office because they have a deep desire to have absolute power. And this unfortunately happens all the time. And this is why, going back to our background of Jude here, this is why the book of Jude is so special, because this is one of the only New Testament books that devotes to combating and confronting apostasy. And we are talking about a defection from the truth, biblical faith. And if you want to look up a few scriptures here, I'll give you about more on apostasy and apostates. You can look in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Hebrews 
Second Peter two, one through twenty-two. So that's that's a big chunk there. And you can also look in one John two, eighteen through twenty-three. So with that being said, that that was a pretty pretty impactful background. And now you know what we're where we're coming from. So as we move forward from this, we're gonna go ahead and read the whole book of Jude. So, Jude 1, here we go. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentious and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulge in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you, without fear caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild ways of the sea, casting up their own Shame like foam, wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, finding fault, 
following their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Well, that was a lot to take in. 25 powerful verses in one book. So, so powerful. So let's go ahead and start unpacking this. Verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Bondservant here, translated in the Greek, is doulos, which means slave. And that's exactly what we are. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. And he is our kurios, our Lord and Master. We are owned by him because he purchased us with his blood. Let's continue. And brother of James, to those who are the call, that it's us in Christ, beloved in God the Father. My friends, I'm going to stop us right there. It's easy to read over these really fast. It's easy to gloss over scripture. But let's just take this in for a minute. Beloved, that is what we are. That is how God views us. And that is such a wondrous love and a love that I cannot fathom. It goes beyond all understanding, beyond all comprehension, that he views us this way, that we are the beloved in him. So powerful. And kept for Jesus Christ. The Greek here for the word kept means watched over, guarded, maintain, preserved, and that is powerful. So we are watched over, we are guarded by, maintained and preserved. So our salvation is secure and kept by Christ. Now let's go ahead and go to verse 2. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Let me ask you something. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? I do. And here Jude, to not only the people, the beloved, that's us in Christ Jesus, he's addressing this to, he's saying, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now let's look at verse 3. Beloved. Oh, there's that word again. Second time. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Okay, now we just dropped a huge truth bomb here. 
And we have to go back and start in verse three and break this down. So beloved, that is the second time we saw that in verse one. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. Here's what I want to tell you about quote unquote biblical heroes. Paul, Moses, Abraham, Matthew, Gideon, Samson, all these people, all these people are not unique in a way that they are elite above everybody else. Because everybody has one common denominator, and that is Christ. It is a common salvation. That doesn't mean that everybody in the world has it, but what it means is that their salvation is not different from ours. And we look to them and think of them as heroes. Think of think of Moses. Think of Noah. Think of Noah. Built an ark 120 years. And then what happened? Then he got drunk. Okay? People in the scriptures are not any different than we are. We all have a common salvation in Christ. Christ is the X factor. He is the only one worthy of praise. He is the only one worthy of worship. He is the only one that is holy. He makes all those who believe in him holy. That's the difference. So moving on. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. I got to say something here. That contend there, this whole part about contend earnestly for the faith. We are in the fight of our lives, people. And we need to contend with skill and commitment in opposing whatever that is not of the faith. Or that contradicts the faith or attacks the faith. And contend here means complete struggle, fight and contest. We have to contest everything. It is a fight. It is a war. It is a battle. And if you remember, we did the spiritual call to arms, talking about the armor of God in Ephesians 6. It's the same appeal there. We are in the fight of our lives. We have to put on the full armor of God. We have to be able to combat all these heresies and false doctrines and false teachings, false teachers that rise up and bring Christ down. I remember saying this to you, but I'm going to say it again. There was a study and survey that came out that of evangelicals, evangelical Christians, about 70% believe that Jesus was a created being by God. That is utterly terrifying and a very destructive heresy. So the majority of people that claim to be Christians probably aren't truly Christians. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ and him being a created being. You just can't because that means he's not God. That's the difference. Jesus is self-existent, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent. He's everywhere. But once again, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am, he was saying, I am self-existent. I am that I am. He is saying that he is God. He is timeless. 
He stepped down into time, but he himself is timeless. So we have to clear that up. But now getting back to the last part of verse 3. Contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. I want you to pay attention to this next part very carefully. The faith we have in Christ began with Christ and ends in Christ. The scriptures, their true meaning regarding Jesus and the gospel, are passed from person to person and a generation to generation, whoever God draws to himself. There is no other revelation from God outside of his holy word. That is very concrete. That is an absolute statement. There is no other divine revelation other than what was given to us, which is now the Holy Bible. All that is in Scripture is final, it's holy, and it's true. You have people today that claim that they have special extra revelation and that they have some secret knowledge that they have that no one else has. And my friends, that is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism claims that they have special revelation that is from God, and then they give it to the people. It's basically secret revelation, secret knowledge, and that's just not true. All divine revelation is found in Scripture. It's clear. It's concise. It's understandable. And that's the way it is. So any people that claim to have special revelation are heretics, and you need to stay as far away from them as, as possible because God doesn't talk to people anymore like that. He doesn't speak to them and give them special revelation. So you need to be really careful. Let's look at verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So certain persons here, we're talking about the apostates. We're talking about false teachers. They have crept in unnoticed, and that's what happens. The crept in unnoticed part here means stealthy. They appear true, and they also settle in alongside. It's kind of like those those little pests and parasites that hang right next to the shark's fin. You know what I'm talking about? They hang there. They, they're, they're right alongside, and they usually go unnoticed. And I'll tell you, one time we were walking in a crowd, and we were kind of off to ourselves at this point, and somehow I went to go tap my brother's shoulder, and I didn't know who I was tapping. And next thing I know, I look over and this person was looking at me like, I have no idea who you are. This person crept in unnoticed. And that is how heretics, people who teach false doctrines and who are false teachers, that's what they do. They creep in unnoticed. They appear, they have a, the appearance. They have the, the great smiles. They might have some biblical knowledge, just enough to be dangerous. And the next thing you know, they are introducing these destructive heresies and causing all these factions and frictions with people. And then you have a major problem on your hands. And then here's what it says about those people. 
those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Remember in Galatians 1, 6 through 8, there's, there's no other gospel. There is no other gospel. And I know, I know some people think that there's other ways to heaven other than Christ, and there's certainly not. So let's look at Galatians 1, 6 through 8 real quick. Paul is saying here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, Christ, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And that word accursed is a very, very powerful word in the Greek. That means damned. So if you're preaching another gospel other than the true gospel, you are to be accursed. Greek words anathema, damned. That is not something to take lightly. And that's what's going to happen for those people who creep in unnoticed, who introduce these destructive heresies and these false gospels. And it says, going on from this point, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. That is a very, very, a very difficult word. I had to practice several times on that. But it means outrageous conduct, shocking to public decency and lewdness. That's what they turn the grace of God into. I mean, the hottest hell is reserved for the apostates who know the full truth of Christ, yet walk away from him and or talk very, very blasphemous against. And it says, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the faith once for all handed down to the saints is holy and must never be altered or added to. Who Christ is, his word and teachings must never be anything other than what they truly are. In doing so, turns the grace of God into evil. That's what people do. And this is why I have such a big problem with the prosperity gospel, health, wealth, and prosperity. If, you, if you're in God, he's going to work all these miracles for you, and he's going to send angels down, and he's going to cause you to have healings and blessings, and he's going to eradicate all these horrible things in your life and give you money beyond your wildest dreams and mansions and, and speedboats and all these things. And yet when those things don't happen and those things fall through and people put their faith in that, and that doesn't come through, what happens? People get angry, they get bitter, and they get mad at the wrong people because, and I shouldn't say people here, but they get mad at God, and the, what they should be really upset with is the false teachers. But no, they distinguish that false gospel to God, and that's not the truth. God doesn't offer the prosperity gospel. That's a false gospel. And those people that do those things will be condemned, accursed, damned. That is their destruction. That is their destination. And yet people flock to those things because who doesn't want to have more money? Who doesn't want to have better health? I mean, there's some people right now that I know of that are going through some very, very, very challenging times. 
and their health is is fading quickly and they have no money to pay medical bills and yet in Christ they are happy they are confident they know where they're going to go when they leave this earth yet the people that believe the prosperity gospel you know what they believe in a false god a false religion and yet when that falls through and they don't get the things that they are promised they attribute that to God and they hate him for it when in reality, he's not the one behind that destruction in the first place. So let's go to verse five. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Did you catch that? The Lord saves but destroys those who do not believe. I know that sounds harsh here, but unbelief is a very, very wretched sin. In Matthew 10, 28, it says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So you have to understand, God does take unbelief very seriously. And it says in Matthew 10, 28, that we shouldn't fear people who can just kill the body. That means we're not going to, we don't fear people on this earth. Yes, yes, we could die for sure. But we need to fear God who is able to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. That's the second death. You don't want to go there. So I want you to turn also with me to John 8, 24, where it says, Therefore I said to you, this is talking about Jesus here, Jesus is saying, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, there's another I am statement, he's saying he is God here, unless you believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? No, it doesn't. But again, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. You must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and Master. Put your complete, total trust and faith in Him. Now let's look at verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. These are talking about fallen angels who took the side with Satan which sealed their doom to everlasting torment in hell. Those fallen angels are now demons. And that's, and that's basically all you need to really know on that. He has kept in eternal bonds until darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. God has no tolerance for sin. And yet we painted a picture as like, well, it's, it's just a little white lie. I mean, it's just a little, it's just a little flesh here, a little there. Maybe you're watching a movie and you know, here comes an inappropriate scene that maybe you weren't prepared for. And the next thing you know, you're well, it's just, it's just a chest. It's not that big a deal. That's dangerous stuff. That's dangerous stuff because look what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah in verse seven. They indulge in gross immorality. People wanted to have sex with the angels that were down there. 
And they were, I mean, they were wanting to kick in the doors. And it was, it was getting very scary. You know what's sad? I think we're already there in our country. I think we're already there. And it says, and went after strange flesh. That's exactly what I was just talked about. God gave us these examples of things to avoid. And they, he gave us these examples to not just avoid them, but to show them if you do these things, this is what's going to happen to you. Look here at the latter part of verse 7. Are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. This is the destiny of those who are without Christ, who are consumed with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And those who are not of the faith. Verse 8, Yet in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. So, it is not good to be in the flesh, to be completely opposed to God. Verse 9, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Verse 10, But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Let this right here in verse 10, the end of verse 10, be a stern warning when you hear people say, trust your gut, trust your instincts, trust your heart. We don't trust in ourselves because in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says the heart above all things is deceitful and is desperately sick. So I have to quote this for you. Because I took a picture of it, and I wanted to share it with you because I found it completely absurd. But I saw this post on Facebook. It's something that someone shared. It says this, Christian, always follow your heart. Not your thoughts, not your feelings, but your heart. Are there red flags going on in your mind right now? Are they going off? Are you throwing your hands in the air and saying, whoa, time out, stop, this is this is bad. Why is this bad? Because we just read that the heart above all things is deceitful and desperately sick. So we don't follow our heart. We don't trust our hearts. Why? Because our hearts are sick, wicked, evil, and sinful. So what it should read, Christian, always follow Christ. Not your thoughts not your feelings, not your heart, but Christ alone. I trust the heart of Christ. I trust the heart of God. I don't trust mine. Because I sin on a daily. I sin on the hourly. I even sin by the minute. And guess what? That's the truth of our fallen nature. We are sinful. We're vile. And yet we think because of the things we do that we're maybe not that bad of people. And that's where Satan wants us. Oh, I, I, I give tithes to the church. I go to Bible studies. I even, I even send money to these 
faraway lands so that these hungry children can eat. And I, you know, I, I donate my time to this and that. And I take my kids to the little league and I do all these things. Yet, if you're without Christ, that doesn't mean a thing. If Christ is not your life, then it doesn't matter. If Christ is not your life, then everything you do is for your own glory. But if Christ, who is our life, which you found out in Colossians 3, if he is our life, our desires become his desires because our lives cease to be. Our, our lives cease to be. Because if you could say my life first, if you will, I don't usually like using that too often, but if I could choose a life first that I would love to live by, it's Galatians 2.20, because listen to it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It doesn't just stop there. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's why a few years ago, when COVID really hit, and the first time I went to a Christian bookstore, I was going around, and you know, I'll be honest, I don't wear a ton of jewelry, but this Christian cross necklace really stood out to me. It said Galatians 2.20 in the front. I thought, oh, that's really cool. And I really wanted it. So I begged my wife and I pled. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But she said, yeah, that's sure. Let's, let's do it. So I got it. And I had no idea that it had on the back of it. I have been crucified with Christ. That is what's on the back side of it. So it was kind of like a double bonus. But that's really honestly how I feel. And that's how the Christian needs to feel. You need to feel that you need to be crucified. Your flesh, your desires, your sinful nature has to be done away with. You have to die to yourself every single day. And you're not just crucified alone. I am crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what it means in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, that's he lives it's not me anymore. Not I, but Christ lives in me. So let's look at verse 11. I know that was a lot. Verse 11. Woe to them. Woe to who? The false teachers, the apostates. For they have gone away of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. That means they don't have any reverence for God. These apostates, these deceivers, these false Christians, these false believers, there's no reverence of God. Listen to what it says after without fear. Caring for themselves. Oh boy. Caring for themselves. Hmm. Sounds like the complete opposite of the message in Philippians, the second chapter. Let's go there. Philippians 2, look at verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Verse 4. 
do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Hmm. So it says caring for themselves. Does that sound like the complete opposite? Yes. And now one of my favorite parts of this book. I'll have to tell you this in just a minute here. Let's read it. Clouds without water. Did you catch that? Clouds without water. What are clouds made of? Water. I read this. I must have read it a ton growing up. And just now that I'm older and a little more mature in Christ, I sat back and I laughed. I laughed at this because I love God's sense of humor. And I love the simplicity and the profoundness of just that. We're talking about apostates, false believers, their hidden reefs, and they participate in the love feast. We're talking about the, the rituals that they used to perform, okay, with in the in the olden days. And they do it without fear. And they only care for themselves. What's in it for me? Clouds without water. Don't be a cloud without water. Because you're then you're not a cloud. You're not a real Christian unless you have Christ within you. Carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit. Do you have good fruit that you bear? Or do you bear bad fruit? Or do you bear fruit at all? Doubly dead uprooted. Isn't that powerful language? So listen to the apostates, false believers. Listen to them one more time without me pausing. Listen to this. See if this isn't powerful. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. I have to share this with you. Uprooted. That is speaking to me huge right now, even though I wrote this up not that long ago. But I want you to listen to going all the way to Psalm. Psalm 1, verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season. That is talking about a, a believer, a true believer in Christ. Let's read the rest of it. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So here we have autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. That's what life is like without Christ. But in Christ, what do we have? We are autumn trees with fruit. We're not carried along by winds. We are clouds with water. We are doubly alive, in my opinion. And we are rooted in him, planted by streams of water, the living water. Verse 13, wild waves of the sea cast up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars. They're not firmly established. They don't have no foundation. For whom the, oh, listen to this. Ooh, this is powerful. 
this is probably the scariest of all verses for apostates for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Carelessly living for yourself in opposition to God seems great at the time, but black darkness is your destination in the life to come. You need to cancel that reservation and come to Christ. But those people who are the deceivers, who are the apostates, Black darkness has been reserved forever for them. And that is a terrifying thought. Verse 14. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Whoa. Judgment is coming to us all. But the true wrath of God judgment is coming to those who are the ungodly. But for the saved in Christ, we will escape by pardon by Christ's death and resurrection. We escape wrath through his grace. But for the ungodly, every careless way of living, speaking of that in verses 12 and 13, which we just read, will finally catch up to him. Then the part will be over. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So these deceivers, these mockers, these false believers, these apostates, people that only care for themselves and do and say what they please, and they use the name of God in, in a profane and blasphemous way, the party will be over one day. The patience of God is something that I cannot grasp because I am so glad that God doesn't deal with people the way that we deal with other people. Because if that were the case, I would have burnt this world up already, to be honest. But He is so gracious, so compassionate, so loving, so patient. And that means salvation for those who are not yet saved. Let's look at verse 16. These are grumblers finding fault, following their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Doesn't that sound like the world today? I mean, Jude here, through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is blasting unbelievers and false believers. They are on blast right now. And that's true. They flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. The sweet talkers, they tell you what you want to hear so they can benefit from you. What, what in this relationship am I going to get out of it? Those are the people you don't want anything to do with. And basically... You are a means to their own end. But now, verse 17, we start coming to the believers part of this. Verse 17, but you, beloved. Now it's talking about us. Verses 12 through 16 was all about sinners and the apostates and false believers. And now, verse 17, now we're going to start talking about the believers. Here we go. 
But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to go back to verse 17 because I just read four verses there. As believers in Christ, we ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit-inspired teachings of Christ said this was going to happen. Now, you have to understand, the apostles were not speaking merely on their own behalf. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit in which they had the authority of God. No one is an apostle nowadays. That was a one-time thing. But we ought to remember. That means we forget very easily. It's in our nature, unfortunately, to forget. We forget things. We ought to remember the words that were spoken before him by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it really goes back to Peter when he's talking about, it's good that you be reminded of those things. I'm paraphrasing here. But that's so important why we have to stay in Scripture. We have to stay in the Spirit we have to keep in step with the Spirit. We have to be in Scripture every single day. It's so important. Because in verse 18, it says that they were saying to you, now this is talking about, this is Jude saying that we have to remember the words spoken. Here's what the words were, were spoken. In the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. That's a quote. This is what's happening then. Now it's happening probably even worse today. These are the ones who cause divisions. Now, verse 19, we're back talking about sinners again. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, capital S. If you do not have the Holy Spirit living within you, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, what does that mean? That means sanctification. That means growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This means going from glory to glory. What does that mean? That's all, that also means sanctification, but listen as I read to you from 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So again, you're building these shelves up. We're sanctifying ourselves. We are laying down the building blocks on top of the foundation of our faith. And what's our foundation? Christ Jesus. And we build upon that. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We intimately get to know him more. And the more we know him, the, the more we fade away, the more he is evident in our lives, the more we bear fruit, the more that we keep in step with the Spirit. We bear the fruit of the Spirit. We put on the form of God. We grow 
an increase in those wonderful heavenly qualities found in 2 Peter 1. Let's keep going. Praying in the Holy Spirit. My friends, never ever underestimate the power of prayer. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray, 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 pray. And yes, it is okay to pray to all the members of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's okay to pray to any one of them. It's fine. Right there, it said pray in the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of, in the love of God. Did you hear that? Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the main priority. Top priority. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. The only time we should be anxious is anxious for the mercy of our Lord, Savior Jesus Christ. That's it. Verse 22. And have mercy on some who are doubting. I want you to turn with me to a, a sad story, but a good story. It's found in Mark 9.24. And in Mark 9.24, we have a man whose son is demon-possessed. And with this son that's demon-possessed, there are many bad things that happen to him. For example, from childhood, I'm going back to verse 21 here, from childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Now listen to this father's response. This is the father talking to Jesus here, asking him for help. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus responds in verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Now listen to verse 24. Listen to the heart of this father here. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. So verse 22, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Brothers and sisters, there are people in your life, and I have to remind myself of this as well. There are people in your life that are not as deep into Christ as you are. There are not as many people that have the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of God and his word to the level you might. And some might have some doubts. So we have to have mercy on those people. But if that is our friends, if that is our coworkers, and that is our family that are crying out, that are with crying out with the doubt, then we must combat that and we must be ready. Are you ready to combat that? Are you ready to take that head on? Are you ready to defend the faith with grace seasoned with salt? Are you ready for that? Are you ready to give a defense for what you believe? 
Listen to verse 23. This is what struck me when I was a kid. And it still is striking me harder today. Verse 23. Listen to this. Save others. Snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear. The snatching out of the fire. That is a burning brand you're plucking out of the fire. You're not just plucking. You're snatching. Think of a burning branch in in a fire. You grab that out real quick, don't you? What's going to happen if you don't? The fire is going to consume it. We have such a heavenly, challenging responsibility. It says save others. Now, on our own, we are not able to save anyone. But the hope that is in us, the Holy Spirit that is in us, Christ that is in us, God the Father that is in us, is strong enough to save. The gospel of Jesus Christ is able to save. That is why we cannot step foot out of our houses and keep that hope within us to conceal it. Because it's not talking about snatching burning brands out of the fires. We're not, we're not talking about branches. We're talking about souls here. It just got serious. And on some have mercy with fear. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. We must detest sin. We must. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must detest sin. Even the clothes of those who sin. That's how serious it is. Because God abhors the wicked. He detests sin. That is super powerful, strong language. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Who are we talking about? Christ. So where it says now to him, let's put Christ in there. Now to Christ who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. I'm going to stop there. I say that a lot, but I have to stop. Why? Look at the wonderful act of grace that Jesus bestows upon us. Listen, are you stumbling in your life? Are you stumbling in sin? Are you stumbling in doubt? Do the things of this world shake you to your core and leave you with more questions than answers? Well, if those answers are yes, then your foundation is not in Christ. Because this foundation says what? Verse 24. Now to him, Jesus Christ, who is able to keep you from stumbling. Only Christ can give you level ground and a rock that is so firm that nothing can shake it. Our foundation is in Christ, and if it is in Christ, it is unshakable. It's unmovable. So, he is able to keep us from stumbling 
and to make us, listen to this, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. 2 Corinthians 5.21 comes to my mind. He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus was blameless, sinless, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's another life verse for me. But listen to verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So, to wrap this up in our one-time book study of Jude, verses 12 through 16 really lay the assault at the gates of apostasy, at the gates of hell, the doctrine of demons, and to those who oppose Jesus Christ, those who are malignant, malicious, malevolent, sons of disobedience. This is a book that is so powerful and is a full-on assault against that darkness. You need to be very careful in your life. We need to guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. We need to watch over our lives and the lives of our families. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We must place our complete trust and faith in Christ and Christ alone. No one else is worthy. No one else can save you. No one else can make you righteous before a righteous holy God on Judgment Day, except Christ alone. It is an honor, it is a privilege, it is a joy, and it is a mind-blowing sense of awe and wonder that God would choose us to be His disciples his followers, his believers, and more above all that, his beloved children. Through Christ Jesus, who makes us holy and blameless. Our salvation has been passed down once for all. This faith that we have is passed down once for all. There are people who creep in unnoticed who come alongside us and they appear true and they come in so stealthy-like to the ungodly, to the disobedient, to the, sinner, to the sinners who oppose God. They are the ones marked out for condemnation and the blackest darkness is reserved for them and the hottest hell is reserved for those who know who Jesus Christ and deny him as his Lord and master of their lives.
That is the worst, worst possible case scenario for somebody to know who Jesus Christ is and to deny him. Because we know, and I'll leave you with this, in Matthew, it talks about that very same thing. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew 10, 32 through 33. I'll leave you with this. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. It doesn't get any crystal clearer than that. It does not. So what does this mean for us? This means that we need to die to ourselves every single day. That we need to trust Christ with our life, with our family's life. But again, it's not so much with our family. We are in the fight of our lives. It sounds selfish, but it's about it's about our salvation of our souls. Only Christ can save us. Only by his death, burial, and resurrection are we able to have salvation in him. We have redemption through his blood. Christ came to pay the penalty of sin for our sins so that we, through him, through grace, through faith in him, can have eternal life in Christ to make us holy and blameless before God. And there will be people that rise up, that will be hidden, They'll be in the shadows. They'll be looking to deceive us and to cause factions and destruction. And yet we know who is true. And that's why I love John 14, 6. Because it is probably my favorite verse of the whole Bible. John 14, 6 says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It says that he is the way. Sometimes the way seems murky and things get mixed up and you don't know which way is which. He is the way. And in a a world now where we're filled with just deceivers and liars and lies and all these denominations claiming to be the truth and all these religions, he is the truth, the truth, and he is the life. This life that we have is is a gracious gift of God, but it doesn't end here. He is eternal life. He is life itself. Come to him for life. Come to him for salvation. And I pray that for you all. I pray that the Lord blesses and keeps you and gives you peace. And remember, my friends, everything is in Christ, with Christ and for Christ. And until next time, God bless you all.